we'll pick up our Revelation series in the new year, in just a couple of weeks, but just a couple of days away from Christmas. I hope you all are able to make it for our Christmas Eve service. It's going to be a really, really nice time. Tonight, let's do a Bible study in Isaiah chapter 9, if you would. Just take a few minutes to walk through this familiar prophecy of the coming of Jesus. And so, I encourage you to take a few notes, if you would, as we go verse by verse here in Isaiah chapter 9, and we think about the significance of the promise of the coming king. You find that in Isaiah 9. These are some verses that we've referenced throughout the Christmas season so far, both in some of my dad's, my dad referenced some of this in his Sunday school lessons along the way, Um, but I'd like to just walk through the passage. So we'll begin in Isaiah chapter 9. I'd also encourage you to find a marker and be ready to go to John 1, which of course we've been studying in detail on Sunday morning. So we'll, we'll move a little bit back and forth, primarily in Isaiah 9. And then we'll be over to John chapter number 1. So Isaiah 9, and then we'll look a little bit at John 1. I don't have any notes, a handout for you, but I do have some notes, so I'd encourage you to jot some things down. Verse number 1 kind of sets it up. So in Isaiah 9 and in verse 1, it says, Nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as was in her vexation. When at the first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward did more grievously afflict her by the way of the sea beyond Jordan in Galilee of the nations. Now, the first verse that we just read, obviously the book of Isaiah is prophesying uh, coming judgment that, that would come to the nation of Israel. So that's the context. But what's amazing about Isaiah's prophecies is that there is hope even in the message of impending judgment for the nation of Israel. And isn't that true with the gospel? The, even the bad news of the gospel, that we're sinners and that we're under the wrath of God, is good news, because if that wasn't revealed to us, we wouldn't know the remedy, and the remedy is in Christ Jesus. So even in the delivering of bad news, the gospel gives us the great hope, and that is the hope of Christ. And so Jesus appears here 500 years before his birth. He appears in this prophecy. So now we pick up verse number two, and this is where the bulk of the the message will come from tonight. Verse number two, the people that walked in darkness. Now, if you remember in verse number one, it talked about a great darkness that would be coming, and now this is kind of shooting even further toward the light that will come out of the darkness. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. And they that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. Thou hast multiplied the nation and not increased the joy. The joy before, they joy before thee according to the joy in harvest. And as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For thou hast broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder the rod of his oppressor as in the day of Midian. For every battle of the warrior is with confused noise and garments rolled in blood, but this shall be with burning and fuel of fire. So again, we've seen pictures of darkness, we've seen pictures of judgment, but we've seen pictures of a great light that's going to shine. And now we look at verse number six. For unto us 
A child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called together. Let's do it. Ready? Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom, to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. In case there was any doubt about the ability for this to be accomplished, it says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask that you'd help us tonight as we study the Bible and we look at this great prophecy of your first coming. Lord, we're reminded that Lord, every prophecy of your first coming was fulfilled right down to the very detail. As we celebrate Christmas, we, we give thanks that as Bethlehem was prophesied, Lord, you fulfilled that. As the prophecy of Egypt, uh, coming out of Egypt, you fulfilled that. Just, Lord, every, every word that you gave was meticulously fulfilled at your first coming. And because of that, we look forward to your second coming. So, Lord, help us to uh, just be gripped with anticipation. Help us to be focused on your word tonight. I pray that it would richly bless us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, you can't look at the first coming of Jesus at Christmas without really getting a vision of the second coming that is yet to take place, that Jesus Christ is set to return the second time, not as the man, in a manger, uh, so meek and lowly, but as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. In fact, it's the most one of the most famous Christmas carols Joy to the world, the Lord is come. And many people have mentioned that's really, if you listen to the theology in that song, it's not primarily speaking about his first advent, but it's speaking about his second coming, the coming of Christ when he comes to rule and to reign. But the Old Testament is just filled with prophecies, filled with prophecies regarding the first coming of Christ, and so many of them were fulfilled, as I prayed, really just so meticulously. But I want you to see tonight, really, the theme of this prophecy is that the baby who would be born, the child who would be born, would be born the king. He was the king. As they sang in the song tonight, he could have been born in a palace so grand, but he humbled himself and became a man. And so that's what we look at, this contrast, where he's the, the people of Israel are looking for a king. He comes in the manger, but he is the king. So, prophecies all over in the Old Testament. There's a series of, of prophecies. Now, this one, you'll notice, first of all, it begins with this darkness and the promise in verse number two. Let's go back to verse number two. The people that walk in darkness have seen a great light, and they that dwell in the shadow of death. Where do we find, you tell me tonight, see if you can help me, where do we find a particular fulfillment of this in the New Testament? Where would we go to, to really see this almost verbatim, but very spe specifically fulfilled? Anybody where we would see this fulfilled or expounded upon? The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. What scriptures does this speak of this in the New Testament? I love darkness, 
Men love darkness rather than light. That's one. What else? Well, I guess we should go look at it then. Let's go to John 1. I mean, Jesus is introduced in John 1 with many... John 1, that we've been studying on Sunday mornings, links us to so many Old Testament concepts. The first, of course, being, in the beginning was the Word, links us to Genesis chapter number 1, in the beginning. But now it goes on, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse number 2, the same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Now we come to verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the what? It's the light of men. But he goes on now. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness to bear witness of that light that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was seen to bear witness of that light. I mean, it's just over and over and over and over again mentioned here. Verse number nine, that was the true light, right? Which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. And there's, there's more, of course, we remember the passage my dad quoted as well, men love darkness rather than light. But you can't escape the fact that Jesus is introduced in John 1 as both the word from the beginning, that links us to Genesis, and then he is the light. He is the light of the world. Um, and light is mentioned over and over and over again in John's Gospel 1. So that links us back here to Isaiah chapter 9, where he says, the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, the land of the shadow. Back to John verse number chapter 1 and verse number 5, the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. So that's verse number five of John chapter one. Let's think about this for a minute. That the light shined in darkness, the darkness comprehended it not. That is a, um, sorry, Steve, I'm in John 1, 5. So um, the light shines in darkness, the darkness comprehends it not. That word comprehend, you're gonna, you want to uh, underline or circle that word. That's a really difficult Greek word to translate, comprehended, there's two ways it's actually translated, even in your King James Bible. It's translated both as comprehended or apprehended. And so the idea of the word here is that the light comes in the darkness, and the darkness just doesn't know what to do with the light. It can't, it can't completely understand it. It can't overcome it. That's another way you could understand this. It can't be comprehended. It can't be apprehended. It can't be overcome because it is a great light. As Isaiah chapter 9 says, Jesus is a great light. There's some other interesting and very important principles of the light that we find here. Look with me at verse number, back in John, so we're still in John. Look at verse number 9. This is a really important concept. That was the true light, which lighteth who? Every man that cometh into the world. Every 
every man that cometh into the world. How do we find, how do people find the light? Well, it's interesting, this, this truth here is that Jesus doesn't just give light to a select few, but he gives some measure of light, some me- measure of spiritual awareness to every single person that comes into the world. He is the true light that lights every man who comes into the world. So the passage here introduces us to the light. That's in Isaiah chapter 9. So the first thing I wanted to point out tonight was that we have the, the, the link to Jesus fulfilling this in John chapter 1. But now let's go back to Isaiah 9 and let's unpack a few more things uh, about the prophecy of the coming one. So first he's seen as a light, but now he shifts. And he shifts away from, he's not just a source of light, but this promised one who's coming is the king of light. So we have this idea of light as philosophical or spiritual, but then there's the kingly aspect, and that's where the rest of the passage makes its focus, on the kingly aspect of it. And so you'll see these three movements in this, in this prophecy. In verses, if you're taking notes tonight, in verses 3 through 5, verses 3 through 5, you'll notice the grace of the king, the grace of the king. In verses 6 and 7, we'll notice the glory of the king. And then we will finish um, looking at the, in verse 7 as well, the government of the king. So the grace of the king, the glory of the king, and the government of the king. So look at verse number 3. So speaking of this one that shines in the darkness, the light that shines in the darkness, Look at the glory of his kingship in verses 3, 4, and 5, or the grace of his kingship. Thou hast multiplied the nation and not increased the joy. They joy before thee according to the joy in harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. So verse number 3 is this speaking of one of the wonderful graces of the king. When the king comes, he's going to bring joy. He's going to bring happiness. The, the Bible says that the, something to the effect of that it's a happy people when righteous people rule over them, right? Like the nation rejoices when they have righteous rulers. And it seems like in, in, in our country, we struggle to really get excited and have a lot of joy over whoever's ruling us, right? I mean, it's just, it goes back and forth, like uh, from this, this political movement to that political movement, and this will be the first time that there is universal joy and happiness with the governing authorities. Wouldn't that be, wouldn't that be something, right? And so the, the, he is described as the coming, the coming um, kingdom and the, will be a kingdom of grace. It's going to bring joy into people's lives. And really, that is one of the purposes that God ordained governments to help people flourish and, and prosper and experience joy. And what's amazing is the kingdom of God is going to even rule on this earth. So there'll be a physical and a literal kingdom that's coming. This is all part of his prophecy. They joy before thee. Look at, look at how the, the joy is described. It's, first of all, it's described in, um, in the middle of verse 3 in harvest terms, so agricultural terms. And so this would be a picture of 
people coming in with the harvest, and they had a good crop. So speaking of a joy of prosperity, um, and then a joy of victory. Look at this, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. They've, so you've got agricultural, you've got military, speaking of both the prosperity and uh, both the prosperity and the victory of this kingdom. I think something that's significant about all these prophecies is this. They are not so detached. They're not so they're not detached from the real desires of people's hearts. You understand what I mean by that? So a lot of spiritual false spiritual and false religious philosophies are very much detached from real life experiences. I was having a conversation with a coworker just a few weeks ago and he was telling me how he was really interested in Buddhism. And he didn't really know anything about Buddhism other than, you know, he looked at a couple things and they sounded cool to him and so he's really intrigued by that. And so I asked, "Well, you know, do you know the basic principles of that?" He's like, "Ah, oh, not really." So isn't that that's pretty typical of people in our day and age just moving from this spiritual thing to another. But I got to talk and I'm not an expert, but I got to explain a little bit about how it really um, that most Eastern belief systems, they really detach spirituality from the, the physical. And the, the goal is to someday escape the body, escape reality, and just be a spiritual force moving through the universe. And that's a poor attempt at explaining it, but you understand if you've studied any of that at all. But one of, I think, one of the great truths or one of the great evidences of the truths of Christianity and the truths of the prophecies is that they speak to the real desires that we have even now. They meet the desires and the longings that people have now, not just for some faraway escape this world concept, but let's face it, there are a lot of things about this world and this life that we've come to enjoy. Would you not agree with me on that? Right? We enjoy a lot of these things. And true spirituality isn't a monastic thing where we become like monks and we deny everything that we desire physically and we just go retreat to a place and, um, you know, as long as we can and all of that. That's not what it's supposed to be. God created this heaven. God created, you do that quite well if you practice that. So um, God created the heaven and the earth. And in the end, in the coming kingdom, there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. There are going to be physical experiences. So what we're seeing here is one of those things. People desire good, joyful government. They want prosperity. We work hard for it and we, we strive for it, but we're under the curse of sin. And so all of our best plans and efforts, they get thwarted. They get attacked. We get shut down. But with the king who's coming, part of the grace is he's going to bring joy. But notice there's more to it. I'm going to ask you to help me now. We've kind of got the ball rolling. So it's not just, the grace is not just seen in the joy, but you look at verse number four. You look at verse number four and tell me, how would you describe this aspect of, of the grace of his kingdom? Thou hast broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor as in the day of Midian. So the first thing we notice about the grace of the king is he's going to bring joy but in verse number four, we see something else about his grace. What, what, how would you describe verse number four? Anybody? If verse three was all about 
grace bringing joy, what would, how would you describe verse number four? Okay, so there's a yoke of sin coming off, but I heard two ladies say it. I think I heard it up here and back there. Mrs. Bailey, go ahead. Freedom. Freedom. And we got a little musical background at the same time just for you to say that. That was awesome, right? So freedom. Verse number four is all about freedom. That the it's broken. So freedom from, freedom from what? I, Jim, you already said it. Freedom from, well, I lost him. <laughs> freedom, freedom from what? Freedom from sin, right? The, the staff of his shoulder. Freedom from what else? It's actually, again, it's not just spiritual here. There's a physical aspect too. Oppressors. And oppressors take all kinds of forms, don't they? Political oppressors, social oppress oppressors. You know, this will be a time of freedom. And, you know, there's a lot of people talking a lot about justice nowadays. And there's different movements for justice and all of that. And there certainly are levels of injustice that are experienced in the world and even in our country today. But the fact is this, the fact is this, that with the coming of Jesus, there will be perfect freedom, perfect justice. That's part of his grace. And it's amazing. In our culture, we try to correct injustice. And often the movements that try to create, they try to fix injustice over here. But by doing that, they move the scale and they create, yeah, they create an injustice over here. And that's not to say we can't work toward some some beneficial ends, but all justice comes from God's justice and his system. But So there's freedom. For us, we know it's, that it's freedom from sin, but also a day coming where there's freedom from any kind of oppression. Oppression doesn't just take uh, you know, spiritual form or a societal form, but there's we feel oppression in all kinds of areas in our lives. At our jobs, in your, in your job you can feel it. In your family you can feel it. But the oppressor's rod will be broken, and the yoke of bondage will be destroyed. And Jesus would say, in, uh, th th he came to, uh, to set at liberty the captive. That prophecy was also fulfilled. Okay, joy, freedom. This is all under this heading of the grace of the king. He brings joy. He brings freedom. Well, let's move on to verse number five. For every battle of the warrior is with confused noise and garments rolled in blood, but this shall be with burning and fuel of fire. Okay, so the grace is seen in joy. The grace is seen in freedom. Now how do you see it? What word would you use now for verse number five? Peace. Peace? I could go with peace. I've got another, I've got a different word, but I think peace might work. What else could it be? Any other words that you describe verse number five? I'm going to go with victory. And of course, the victory brings peace, so we can put those two together. I think you could use either to describe this, but it's victory. Victory over what? So on the, on the one hand, we are free from the oppression, but this is a little bit more. Now it speaks specifically of the, the, the victory that's coming, the battle being won. What kind of a battle? Battle against sin? Sure, yeah. Satan, there's a great spiritual conflict that goes on. In fact, the, the physical conflicts of this world are fueled 
by the prince of the power of the air. All of the warfare, all of the bloodshed is fueled by the great oppressor, the great adversary, which is what Satan means. It means his name literally means adversary, the one who is our enemy. And so the prophecy teaches us that this wonderful grace, there's going to be joy, there's going to be freedom, and there is going to be an ultimate, complete, and total victory. Sound good? Sign me up, right? It's awesome. So, well, that's the grace of the king. Let's move on to the glory of the king in verse number six. Now we get a more personal glimpse. We get a more personal glimpse. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. I give my annual plug right here for you to take some time and listen to Handel's Messiah. I always recommend that every single year because I can't get to these verses. And I know we skipped to the wonderful counselor part, but I, I just hear unto us, unto us. You know, if you've listened to it, you know. It's so good. Can I get a witness there? I mean, so good. Um, for unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. Remember, on Sunday mornings, we've been defining glory as just that breathtaking observation, if you will. Just that, whoa, wow. It's better experienced than it is explained. He's glorious. Unto us, a child is born. Incredible. Undeserved and overwhelming. For unto us, a child is born. Shouldn't it be unto him we were created? And we know that's also true. That would be a true emphasis. For unto him we were created. His name is Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. But you see how in divine grace he flipped that around. And instead of it being we unto him, he came unto us. That's, that is a humility that we cannot understand and it's glorious. The glory of the king, that humility we see there. For unto us, a child is born. He's our child. He, he's ours. He was given to us. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful. Full of wonder. Beautiful. Majestic exceptional. The angels cry, holy, holy, holy. We worship him for he's wonderful. He's transcendent. He's sovereign. That gives us security in times of fear and uncertainty. Wonderful. Counselor. I got again the ball rolling. Well, I gave you a description of wonderful. Give me some descriptions for counselor. Counselor, go ahead. Anybody? You don't have to raise your hand. He's the counselor. That means what? Wisdom. There's wisdom in body. What else? Healing. Okay. Well, healing in the sense of the counselor that, because counselor also has the idea of comfort along with it. Guide. So, yeah. Huh? Guide. He's God? No. Oh, guide. Yeah, that's a good word. God, he's the guide. 
as the counselor, he's a source of wisdom and healing. He's our guide. What other words come to mind? Knowledge. Knowledge. Anything else? courtroom, the counselor in that sense, like, that's the advocate. That's the Greek word paraclete. He, it's in, in John chapter 2, it's advocate. In uh, That's 1 John 2. In 1 John 2, it's advocate. In John 14, 15, 16, it is comforter. That's how he's described, the comforter. It's the paraclete. It's the one who comes alongside as comforter, as advocate. It's a wonderful truth, which that's the word I thought of. True, trustworthy, authoritative as the counselor. Anything else? Hmm? Helper. Helper. Yeah. That, that really kind of simplifies it too to, to where we live each and every day. You know? Like, there's this far off thought of use ultimate wisdom, ultimate guidance, ultimate truth, ultimate authority, but that's, that's, that's almost like, you know, the all-wise sage or professor, but he steps down and comes alongside us and says, you need some help. I like that. Counselor, the wonderful counselor. See, again, you're noticing in the prophecy, it's true to what we need. And that's one of the, I've told people many times, there are there's really three, three things that, that bolster my faith in the, in the Word of God. This is just a little bit of apologetics, but three things. You say, well, how, how are you so certain? How are you so certain that the, that the Bible is true? How are you so certain of your faith? How do you know that, uh, that Christianity is true? And, and there's really three pillars that I lean on that have given, spoken to my soul and my intellect. One would be the... Um, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the fact that he rose from the dead, if that's a settled historical fact, it validates everything else. Secondly, and usually I say this third, but secondly would be the witness of the Holy Spirit in my heart, the intangible factor that, that God speaks to our heart. But usually what I put as number two is a philosophical proof that the Bible answers the questions of life better than anything else. That when you read the scriptures, they are self-evidently clear. That as you read them, there is no system on earth that better answers the human condition than what we have in the Word of God. And what you have here in Isaiah chapter 9 is a picture of that. It's an ex I should say an example of that. Because what Jesus has promised to be and who he is is all, all that we need and all that fulfills us. Wonderful. Counselor, but there's more. Mighty God. Mighty God. I had a conversation with a Jehovah's Witness friend one time. I worked with him. I was 16 years old, you know, all like fired up. Probably didn't have any tact at all, but we would, we would talk. I worked at Skiria. And I was trying to prove to him that Jesus was God, you know, from the Bible. And he's Jehovah's Witness, all tied up in this. And uh, it was really frustrating. If you've ever had one of those conversations, they can get really frustrating. 
I said to him, it says in Isaiah, the, uh, it says, wonderful counselor, mighty God. And he looked at me and he says, well, it doesn't say the mighty God. I was just like, oh, man. Then fortunately, the very next phrase says, everlasting Father. So I think we're safe there. Um, but his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God. Oh, no, no, that's not what he said, because it does say the. He says it doesn't say Almighty God. That was his line right there. But um, the Mighty God. So what comes to turn, what comes to mind there? Obviously, that this speaks to his deity. He is creator, he is omnipotent, he is supreme. He orders and sustains my existence. He gives meaning and purpose to my life because he is the mighty God. Interesting bit of Hebrew here. And again, I'm, I always qualify this. I'm not a linguistic scholar, but God is Elohim and often is used to describe even false gods with that name. That's why you see things like the mighty God, right? The, he, is, he, is, he is the true God. The true Elohim, everlasting Father. So obviously this also speaks to his deity, but what else does it speak to? What else does this speak to? Not just his deity, but what else? Power. I think it's, who, who's, who just had one? Compassion. Compassion. So, all right, yeah, hold that thought for a minute. So I think this speaks, obviously, theologically, it points us to a Trinitarian view, right? There's, theologically, this, is, this is, speaks toward the Trinity. That even in the Old Testament, even in the Old Testament, there's a son who is called a... What is it? A son who is called a everlasting father, right? A son who is called a father who's called a mighty God, who's called an, so this speaks theologically to the Trinity. But, as John said, it speaks of compassion, right? Or benevolence. That he doesn't just rule over us, but he rules over us as a, as a father. As a father. That's why when, my understanding is when Jesus taught the disciples to pray, you know what he said. He said, they said, Lord, teach us to pray. And Jesus said, well, when you pray, this is how you should start. Start with what? Our Father. That was not the way that the Pharisees ever addressed God. They did not look at him as a benevolent father. But he is that. The everlasting Father, eternal, merciful, gracious. Well, there's one more. Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. The Prince of Peace. Somebody give me some thoughts on that. That he is, we're speaking of now the glory of his kingdom. So we saw the grace of the king, now we're finishing up the glory of the king. Prince of Peace. Prince of Peace. Some thoughts on that. Peace from war. Sure. Righteousness, okay. Thoughts on this? Prince of Peace. Savior. Okay, Savior. What else? We'll put these together now. Peace with God. 
So there's peace with God, there's peace of God. He's called the Prince of Peace, right? So that, you know, I like to think of those two things together. You know, each word having significance and then they're put together. He is the Prince of Peace. Yes? Oh, I like that. Yeah, I hadn't actually thought of that, but that's right. So the prince, and he's the one that comes first. If you want to see peace, look to Christ. That's good. What else? He's the prince of peace. Hmm? Yeah. So princes rule, right? Princes have authority. Princes have power. No one can threaten the peace that he brings because he is the Lord of peace, the Prince of peace. He commands the peace. So it's, it's, it's not just that, that he brings peace, but he brings peace as one with power and control and authority. So when his peace comes, he rules over it. It's an, it's an uncontested peace. It's an ultimate peace. None will dare challenge his throne. And, and well, at the very end, some will, but it will be quickly uh, put away with. And we'll get to that when we study the book of Revelation. The point is that his peace is secured. The, the, the very best kings and rulers and princes and presidents and governors, they can bring us temporary peace. But the prince of peace, the peace is, any peace is only as secure as the one who brings it, Right? And Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Personally, that means I know that I can have peace. My victory is secure in Him regardless of what trials I might face, regardless of what difficulties I might face. Because my peace is secured, the peace in my life, my peace with God, the peace of God, it's secured by the Prince, not by myself. Say it again. Yep. Right. Right, exactly. There is no true peace uh, without the Prince of Peace. There can be temporary peace and a shadow and a glimpse of peace, but no true peace. No eternal peace. Absolutely. He is the Prince of Peace. All right, so that is, we've seen in these verses, the, um, the grace of the king, joy, freedom, and victory. We've looked at his glory that's unto us. He's a wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and prince of peace. Now we'll finish with the government of the king, and that's in verse number seven. So in verse number seven, the government of the king. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it, and to establish it with justice, with judgment and with justice from henceforth forever, the Lord of hosts, the zeal of the Lord of hosts, will perform this. So, help me out here. What did you notice about his government? What have you noticed? And we'll, we'll wrap it up in just a minute, but uh, we've seen his grace, we've seen his glory. Now we look at the specifics of his government. In verse number seven, what are we learning about the government of the son, the child, the son who's given? What do we learn about his government? It's going to increase. It's going to strengthen. 
And it says, of its increase, of the increase of his government shall be no end. So it's just, it grows. It doesn't, there's, there's nothing that's going to stop it. It's power. Mm-hmm. What else do we learn about his government? Yeah, it's, it's peace. It's, that's mentioned again. Somebody else, what do we got? What else are we learning about his government? Perfect justice. Perfect justice. Won't be protests. No need to protest. There will be one final great protest, right? That's the we'll study that in Revelation. The the final protest when in after the millennial reign, the the the, the devil is loosed and deceives them one once more, but they justice will be measured in perfect exactitude is that a word i think that's a right a correct word justice will be exact and perfect anything else that you notice about the government here perfect order order yeah perfect order if you're a pundit now there won't be any work for you if you're a pundit <laughs> yeah the uh yeah the um Rachel Maddow and Sean Hanley's of the world will be out of a job. We won't need either of them. Sorry, Tucker. No, no more work left for you. I guess we'll finish with this thought too. It's certain. It's a certain government, and that that is the 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 the, the glory of studying prophecy. And I think it's such a gift that God gave us prophecies of a first coming and then he gave us prophecies of a second coming because the first coming was so perfectly fulfilled. How could we ever doubt the second coming of Christ? It was so perfect. All right down to the very detail, everything was fulfilled. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. People that sat in darkness have seen a great light. For unto us, a child is born. Unto us, a son is given. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we've had uh, this time tonight. We pray that uh, you'd help us, Lord, to be just have a renewed confidence in your word. As we celebrate Christmas, Lord, I just pray that our hearts would be stirred Lord, triumphantly and joyfully as we realize that all of this was for us. Help us to realize that we're called now to live for your honor and glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.